This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is a kind of online think tank. Powerful ideas from some of the world's most creative thinkers distilled into small, shareable doses. The Think Again podcast remixes this formula. The producers pick surprise idea clips from over 10,000 of them in our archives. My guests and I watch them and discuss, and from there, the conversation can go anywhere. I'm very happy to be here today with artist David Sally. His paintings are in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Guggenheim Museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the National Gallery Berlin, and many others. His book, How to See, is a collection of essays, mainly on the work of other artists, that delves deep into questions about how art is made and what happens when we experience it. Welcome to Think Again, David. Thank you. So, your book is largely, it's a collection of essays that discuss your reactions to and possibly the intentions of and the processes of other artists. It's interesting that, you know, you being a very accomplished artist, you don't talk much about your own work at all. I'm curious what the intention is there. What, what are you trying to achieve by going so deeply into other work? There's a whole tradition, as you know, of artists writing about, talking about their own work, which I have done, to my mind, ad nauseum in catalogs and <laughs> interviews and whatnot. Uh, this book is a collection of pieces written for periodicals, for general interest magazines like Town & Country or sometimes art magazines like Artform. And for the most part, they are reviews of exhibitions. Okay. So the, 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 the point of the book, you could say or maybe the format of the book, is to leave myself out of it in the particulars, but to obviously discuss my sensibility, my predilections, via a, a discussion of, of the work of others. I, there are two things to say at the outset. One is that I think art is for everyone, which isn't the same thing as saying that we all have to like everything. But I think the, the, the mystification around contemporary art that some people experience is unnecessary. There's no reason anyone should feel excluded. And the other thing, the other point to make is that how we talk about art, the language we use, does matter. Uh, when I was a kid and I would complain about something, my mother would say, well, don't just complain about it, do, do something about it. All artists, all the ones I know anyway, right. would complain about the level of the discourse surrounding art. And I, in the spirit of my mother's encouragement, I just felt it was incumbent on me to try to do something about it. You talk a lot about intention in the book, and I, I'm interested in that also in terms of how it affects the, the artist's process. 
the writer Zadie Smith once said something very interesting. She's a novelist. She once said that there are two kinds of writers. Um, you know, anytime someone says there's two kinds of something, I guess you have to take that with a grain of salt. But um, she said there are two kinds of writers. There's the kind that maps out the entire plot in advance and knows where everything is going and then writes the book. And then there's the kind that just sort of dives into the messy unknown. Um, and she said she's of the latter type. She wasn't necessarily saying one is better than the other. But I wonder, like, for artists, like, how that might relate to this question of thinking about intention from the beginning or not. I know it's a kind of a big, messy question, but... It's impossible to really say anything prescriptive about how art is made because some, someone will come along and make <laughs> transcendent art in a way which seems so ass backwards. <laughs> but but because we it has happened and will continue to happen, we can right. never rule anything out. So right. that with practicing artists, I mean there simply is no prescriptive one-liner that we that we can use. However, talking with students is another matter altogether. Because students often start from the intention side of the street and never actually even make it to the other side, which is where the, where the work actually gets done, where the, gotcha. where the effect gets created. What, I, what I'm trying to get out in the book yeah. is to illuminate that space in between. Okay. Having the intention and being able to assess whether or not it was actually communicated. Let me give you an example. When I was in art school, I, I came across something that was attributed to Bruce Nauman, the sculptor, the artist, the great artist Bruce Nauman. Okay. And it was something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing, the work that you're about to see was about lying in bed at night with your feet protruding past the blanket or the sheet and the strange sensation of spatially occupying space in a, in a, in a way which becomes unsettling or even uncanny. All right. In other words, this work is about being too tall for my bed. And I love that as an idea. I love that as an, as an intention. I love that as, a, as an art idea. That what's the most brilliant art idea I've ever heard in my life? No one's would ever fail to be excited by that idea. The question is, did the work do it? Sure. Did Does the, the work the, manage to capture that yeah, feeling? Not, and, like, not as, just the idea. So, right, and, this, yeah. and this, is yeah. the, this is the tricky part about, about yeah. aesthetics. What would capturing that idea look like or feel like? Does that imply that the viewer should look at whatever the thing was, I don't remember what the sculpture was, and say, oh, I know what that's about. That's about that feeling. Right. Highly unlikely. Right, it, right. Could, convey, it could just convey, it could just convey a convey, sense of anxiety. It could be or a sense you know, of uncanny you know, spatial dislocation. Right, right, right. But right. something palpable right. and something unlike other sensations. But now, that's the first part of the equation. The second part of the equation is, did the work give access to that feeling, okay. convey that feeling, in a way which was stylish, efficient, and elegant. It's easier to think about these things in language, because it, we, we all use language. And I was just thinking as you were talking about how you know, slippery language is, because when you initially said stylish to me, right, for me, the set of associate, you know, stylish immediately conjures up ornamented. Oh, which no, is no, not, no, which is exactly the no, opposite quite, of what you meant. Yeah, yeah. Quite, quite the opposite. Sty <laughs> yeah. Stylish means in art, in visual art, stylish means efficient. That's it's very and, funny. And, yeah. and to the point. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm. uncluttered. Yeah. yeah. The things which we think of as 
positive values in life right. are usually the same ones that come into play when we're talking about what an artist did. That's you know, an interesting like, passage in your book, yeah. You compare that to the qualities that we value in people. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, no one likes a dithering, airhead, <laughs> indecisive... And you include qualities in like elegant way. generosity and generosity, warmth as well. Yeah. And I mean, stinginess can be an interesting aesthetic quality also. <laughs> right, right, right. If, it's, if the stinginess is, is offered with generosity, if you know what I mean. I do. Yeah. I do know exactly <laughs> what you mean. Um, I think, I think on that note, because uh, I could actually continue in that vein all day, but I think let's get to the, let's get to the surprise clips and see where they take us, uh, which may be into some of the same territory or somewhere completely different. Okay, so the first one that we have, let me, let me actually see what, who and what this is. This is Dave Evans, a mechanical engineering and design thinking theorist. Mm -hmm. And the clip is called How to Make Better Decisions Through Prototyping. Hmm, so okay. let's see what that's all about. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. When I was the first mouse product manager at Apple many, many years ago, uh, we prototyped the mouse. Now, the mouse was, of course, an electromechanical device. It had this little ball and it had, you know, Schmidt trigger LED detectors in it that were brand new technology. And those things could be engineering prototyped. But whether or not you liked the way it felt in your hand or rolling this thing around on the desk and then looking at the screen over there made sense to you. We had no idea how that was going to go. We had hundreds of prototypes, one button or two. I had long and religiously, ideologically animated conversations with Larry Tesler and Steve Jobs about one button or two and modelessness and double clicking and, you know, there's no answer to those questions. You have to try them. So we did lots and lots of prototypes of process or experience and lots of prototypes of shape and what have you. And we ended up with the mouse and the mini mice we have today. Couldn't have engineered that. We had to design that. We want an example of a life prototype. So there's a woman we know, actually an example, who didn't do much prototyping. Um, you know, we'll call her Ellen. And she was an HR executive but loved Italian food and had always dreamed of having an Italian deli. And she decided to go for it. So she went for it. So she saw this old deli that was for sale. She bought it. She quit her job. She refurbished the whole thing. She redesigned it. She laid it out. She put it in a little cafe because she wanted to replicate this experience she'd had living in Tuscany briefly. And it opened a great fanfare and was wonderfully successful. Nobody's successful the first time in a restaurant. Never happens, except she hated it. She loved the idea of it. She loved developing it. And now I'm running a retail establishment. I have to hire people all the time. Most of my employees are high school kids and they quit on you regularly. I'm managing inventory lists. None of the reality of running an Italian deli and cafe was really delightful to her. Now, the prototypes that she could have iterated, she could have started with visiting a lot of different Italian cafes and talking to the owner. Lots of ways to try, 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 try before you jump off the cliff or buy the farm. What prototypes and design do are they allow you to ask interesting questions, learn things, expose your assumptions, and let you sneak up on the future. I love the distinction between design and engineering. It can't be engineered, it has to be designed. 
design is the, the name for uh, knowledge arrived at intuitively through, through intuition. Right. And with very few a prioris. Engineering is the, is the name for the a prioris which guide the execution. Right. So that's a wonderful distinction and certainly mm -hmm. analogous to the things we're talking about in the book about visual art. Right. The, you, one could even say that the engineering is the intention part and the design is the art part. Right. Because the, it's, as he very eloquently stressed, the, the no right or wrong. It's intuitive. Right. One button or two. Well, it depends what, you, what, you, what kind of experience you want to have. Right. So that's the, that is the design piece, yeah. That, yeah. That, those questions. Yeah. And, and it's, it's just truly experiential. Don't know until you see it. There's this right, you know, there is sort of a right and wrong, not a priori, but, you know, in terms of the feel and the f intuitive right and wrong, I suppose, right? In the sense of like, oh, this is working, this right. is no, not No working. right or wrong. However, as you said, as you just, I'm just repeating what you said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, there is an intuitive sense of satisfaction. Right. Ah, that's what I was looking for. Yeah which is not the same thing, although it might look the same, but not the same thing as knowing that's what the thing looks like or feels like before you start. And it's just unlikely the two things would be congruent. What's interesting to me is that, is that on the one hand, you know, th that, is, that is correct. You are, you're, you're moving toward, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me that with prototyping and iteration, you're moving in the direction of something that, that feels right. But on the other hand, it seems to want to short-circuit intuition in the sense of short-circuiting assumptions. It wants to say, it wants to say, oh, let me, it. let's do everything we possibly can. Let's see this in every possible form, mm -hmm. every possible context. You know, the woman should go do this and mm -hmm. that and the other before she buys a, a restaurant mm -hmm. in order to be absolutely certain that what we thought was the case is, is in fact the case, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, as, as, ourselves or as a life direction, I'm, I, I don't have any particular <laughs> right, right, reaction right. to it. I'm not, I don't have any feeling about it. I mean, one can't, in fact, prototype everything, perhaps a matter of personality. I'm probably more like the cafe lady than, <laughs> than, than this, this fellow. I don't prototype much. I have a instinct about something and hope for the best. So with a piece, you just kind of like work, work it. Well, I, I, I mean, it it spe specifically with my yeah, own, yeah, yeah, yeah. my own painting, I never work from maquettes or even working drawings. I, I, I start and hope that, hope that, you know, that my, my intuition will guide me based on experience and receptivity to what's happening in the moment. There are many, many, many wonderful artists who work in a totally different way. This say much more on the, on the side of having an idea and executing it. They say almost right. as if it has been designed and the art part is simply carrying out the design. However, it was unknowable and unknown before right. it was made. But I, as a, again, as a life direction, I mean, this may, might be precisely the branching off point between artists and engineers and designers. Right. Most artists would say, go buy the cafe. <laughs> <laughs> right, you'll, right, you'll, right, right, right. You'll figure it out later. You either like it or you won't. You I mean, what's it. interesting <laughs> is that, you know, over a lifetime, that maybe becomes a kind of prototyping in the sense that, like, I think about, like, Picasso's work. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a, I don't have a comprehensive awareness of Western art or art 
at all, uh, visual art at all, honestly. Um, but also Alex uh, Katz, who you talk about in your book. And you know, you were talking about him being obsessed with a particular creek, I guess, is it? Black Brook is Black, a subject he's Black Brook, times. which he's painted yeah. many times. And I think about some of the things I've seen of Picasso and his sculptures, and where I see the same themes or the same shapes or configurations kind of worked and reworked, but they're out, they're put out there. You know what I mean? So it's a kind of prototyping in real life. Like, this mm. is the art. Yeah. It's not like a test. It's going out over a lifetime. Yeah, it's, you know? it's um, I mean, what you're describing as the variations on a theme, on a visual theme, which... I mean, everyone can understand that because you, you, you only have so many, you only have so many times up at bat, so to speak. Right, but right. the the way in which the prototyping idea or metaphor does apply and could be useful is actually precisely in the Alex Katz universe. Alex is someone who has, he, he, I don't know from your listeners if they will know, they'll have a mental picture of w w what we're talking about, but Alex... But they can, they have Google, so they... Right. So Alex, Alex makes a study, a drawing, a small painting, a bigger painting, bigger still painting, until finally the full dress, 10 or 15 foot long painting using a very, very, very large brush. Right. In a sense, he's rehearsed for that full dress concert uh, and is very, very prepared for it. So this, the spontaneity of executing the painting in the moment right. is assured by the careful preparatory work. However, that's neither, in a way, it's not here nor there. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's important for his, for the result. But the pragmatism of Alex's work, I think, is a model for all kinds of things in life, not just painting, not just art. Very much like the Bruce Nauman example, although I didn't really cite a specific work, Alex has pared anything inessential away from the work. Right. So that there's no dithering. Got you. And that comes from and the that, successive that, stages. That comes of, from practice. Yeah. It comes from, di the distillation comes from experience. Got you. Got you. Does he, I, I don't know his work well enough, does he make that process transparent? I mean, is that, are those earlier iterations ever they're, on they're show? All, they're, all yeah. sh they're all shown. They're yeah, all yeah, yeah, yeah. part of his oeuvre. And uh -huh. uh, you, know, uh, uh, you can see the steps. Probably, the if one needed it, one doesn't, but if one needed mm -hmm. If there's some sort of weird <laughs> court, if you, if one, the, the, the proof of Alex's importance as a painter is that each of those iterations is interesting in and of itself. Right. Which is probably, I don't, I don't really know, but probably if you looked at the majority of the sentences that Flaubert wrote for Madame Bovary did not, are not in Madame Bovary. Most of Madame Bovary was left on the cutting room floor. Right. But probably each one of those sentences is still worth reading. Yeah, I mean, it's received wisdom for writer, among writers anyway, that like you never have a good first draft. You know, essentially your first draft is useless. And, and I've always found that a bit tragic. I mean, in anything I've written, it seems that good things are lost sometimes in that, it, it, when you throw away the earlier iterations. Yeah, I mean, only, the, only to say that this, even the sentences not used probably sounded like Flaubert. Right, <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, Okay, so let's see, let's see what the second one is, okay. shall we? Yeah. Okay, this is Alva Noah, who is a philosopher, and he wrote a book called Strange Tools about art, mm -hmm. uh, and he called art a strange tool, and I guess we'll see a bit what he meant by that here. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. 
made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Artists make things not because the things they make are special, but because making is special for us. If you go back 30,000 years, to the dawn of the psychologically modern human being. What, what seems to inaugurate that beginning is precisely this, this explosion of, of making practices, of tool-making tool and tool-using practices, and pictorial practices, and linguistic practices, and clothing. We are makers, and I think that artists make things to unveil that fact about ourselves. So I, I say that works of art are strange tools. They're not just more tools with this or that function or application. They're tools that, in their strangeness, are meant to exhibit the place that tools and technology have in our lives. The view that I've come to is that actually art is itself its own research practice. The art situation becomes an opportunity to really put one's own perceptual consciousness or other aspects of one's consciousness, one's understanding, sort of interview for oneself. And that's one of the reasons why I like to say that art is something like a philosophical practice. Because what I've just said about art really is paradigmatically philosophical. This idea that art or philosophy are somehow in the business of unveiling us to ourselves and in doing that, supplying us with resources to change. You know, it's funny that he talks about the 30,000 years ago people, first tool makers and first pictorial makers, because I've always wondered, where is the student work of the cave painters? <laughs> Every cave painting you've ever seen is fabulous. Right. There's never any bad cave painting. They must have had some cave where they did the practice runs, the trial runs, and the, which they walled up, will never be found. Because it's, it's just improbable that every single thing a caveman artist painted was, was first rate. Do you think it's possible, I mean, you, that may very well be the case, but do you <laughs> think it's possible that somehow in, in our infancy as a species, or at least the earlier iteration of us as a species, we were in a way closer to what we think of as animals, although yeah. we are animals, in the sense of immediacy, non-self-consciousness, you know, yep. free of those layers of, of self-reflection that might cause us to require a student period yeah. in a way. Like. Yeah, who knows? Quite, quite possibly. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a cognitive scientist. No, but, no, or, I know. Or an anthropologist. But, um, <laughs> but sure, nice, nice to think so, that <laughs> that would be the animal version of making art. You don't, you don't need much practice because it's something that comes from some other place. Right. I don't know, but, yeah, but yeah. back to his argument. Okay. That art is a tool for looking at our own relationship to the world, you know, undoubtedly, it's, that's the enlightened view, and can't argue with it. It would be interesting to walk through a specific exhibition with him and right. say, okay, how does it do that? Yeah, I'll say that, yeah, about your book, uh, going, going back to that, I'll say that what is one thing that's very interesting about it 
is that in in going you know in looking specifically exhibition by exhibition artist by artist you are enacting the practice that you're talking about so there's not so much meta talk mm -hmm. except you know, there are some essays toward the end of the book but like right. primarily you're not saying here is how you should go look at art yeah. you are looking at art exactly i'm i'm yeah. dealing i'm trying anyway i'm trying to deal in specifics right because it's only in the specific cases that anything really illuminating happens. Yeah, right. So sometimes these things sound like contradictions because we're not talking about the whole recipe all at once. We're breaking it down. We're talking about, first we're talking about the first phase, and then maybe the next conversation will be about the very final phase. And we're leaving out all the intermediate steps. Art's complex. A, a, a successful painting, to use painting as a shorthand for any visual work of art. Right has to do about 12 or 16 things simultaneously. One of them is to make the room look better, and I don't mean that in any flippant way. Right. A painting, for example, doesn't have a high-level decorative function. It's never going to make it in New York, in the, in the, mm. in, in the New York art world. So one of the things that painting has to do is to make the room look better, but, but further down the list... I wonder what Francis Bacon would say about oh, <laughs> some Francis, of those... Francis like... Bacon's paintings are among the most elegant, Refined and decorative of any paintings produced in the last 80 years. And, no yet, and yet, I can yeah. certainly imagine a sort of bourgeois collector finding it a bit dark for their tastes in their well, living room. Well, dark, you know? dark subject matter wise or content wise is, is, is subjective. Mm -hmm. But the. I'm not talking but, about the but, totality but, but, of his work right, anyway. Right, but, 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 but it's an interesting distinction because the, the, when I talk about style or styling, the styling of a Francis Bacon is piss elegant. Mm -hmm. There are few more elegant painters of the last whatever many years, when he was working in the 50s, what is that, 60 years, who were more refined. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, what I've seen of Bacon's work is um, endlessly fascinating yeah. because of contour and form. And, right. Well, you, you, you know, know. that Bacon specifically, and this is only I don't know Bacon. how we got off on this, but yeah. yeah. But he's pretty, well, <laughs> two, two things. We're talking about a specific example, which in my view is always better than talking about the general. Right. So why, it doesn't matter that we could be Great. talking about Bacon, yeah. we could be talking about somebody else. But let, since you brought him, let's talk about him. Because yeah, since yeah. he's an artist, most people probably have a mental picture of, so it's useful. I was going to say that Bacon, in particular, was a furniture designer and an interior decorator before he was a painter. Ah. His early work is high modernist uh, design, oh, in wow. kind of Eileen Gray, uh, very advanced 1920s modern taste. The mm -hmm. sensibility mm -hmm. was formed early and remained intact. So it's not a contradiction to say, yeah, they're very elegant things and they're very highly styled. And well, what's Bacon's work about? Bacon's work is not about refined living room sweet, it's about something quite violent. Yeah, psychic pain. And it's the two things, one inside the other, right. which is what makes it interesting. Right, the yeah. fact that that right, incredibly chaotic emotion is contained within a fairly Yeah, I don't even know if it's chaotic. It's just, it's just let's just say it's, it's um, interest in its own revealed interiority, let's say, is interesting presented as it is Mm. In, a, in a highly refined style. 
By chaotic, mm -hmm. I meant the sort of what looks to me like the id exposed <laughs> yeah. through a very yeah. organized exterior. Yeah, you know? well, well yeah. put. Yeah. Okay, so one last one, and sure. then we'll, all right, yeah. and and this one is uh, is somebody you actually write about in the book. I just saw um, it is Julian Schnabel. <laughs> it's called "I'm Like a Cave Person with a Website." So let's see what Julian's got to say. I think the internet is can be very useful. I mean, people have websites. In fact, I have a website, and I'm 59 years old. That must be really stupid. It's, it's, a, it's a huge, you know, important innovation, but does it have anything to do with what I do? I mean, me, Julian Schnabel? Not really. I'm more like a cave person. I'm actually painting something with my own hands. It doesn't go through the airwaves in invisible speed and end up in somebody's head. It's about you looking at something and you're finding something that's inside of yourself. The internet helps with education, making people more aware of certain things. But really, you think you can get anything on the internet? I could think of something that I could say right now that you couldn't get on the internet. I'd like to have a plastic awning from a butcher shop in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. When it's rolled up, it's red. But where it's been exposed to cover the window of the butcher shop, the sun, I'd like this, the sun needs to bleach it so it's ochre. It's kind of an ochre and dirt color. And the image of that will look like the New York skyline. I think it'd be very hard to order one of those. You look at what's not generic. So as an artist, what do I really do? I point and say, did you see that? Can you see that? So that's really interesting <laughs> well, on a it's, lot of it's, levels. Um, yeah. I mean, as you can see, we can't extrapolate from just two artists and assume that all artists think along similar lines, but but you can start to get a can start to sense a pattern. Yep. Julian's talking about the particularities, the unique identity of some one thing, as opposed to the categorical generalities that are on the internet or on the museum wall label or on the, any other system of organization. Um, I've often said that. Um, Generalization is the enemy of art. Right. The arts only exist in the specifics, the particularities of that thing in that exact shade of red, to use Jun's example. And uh, to unpack yeah. the, that categorization you're talking about, you know, that's, that's things like postmodernist art or, well, this, I mean, or they're, they're, contemporary art, yeah, I mean, labels that yeah, stand between people and right, art. But then, even, even, of course, there are art historical categories, and I think I take pains to point out in the book, one can't really live without them. They're very useful. Right. I'm not suggesting that we throw them all out. Right. Baroque is different from the, the Romanesque, but for example, but, but that's not what makes it interesting. That's right. not what makes some artists' work interesting. But what Julian was talking about, I think, is the, the internet specifically is the place for an uninflected subject matter recipe book. I'll take one of those, and one of those, and one of those. I want a picture of a boy playing a, a lute. I want a picture of a, right. of a, of a girl in a, on a beach. I want a picture of a... And those things are by very, very nature generic. Yeah, and this completely ties to yeah. that. He's talking about looking, he's talking about seeing. Yeah. I find it very interesting how 
slowly he talks. I think that that's actually relevant. You know, he's to talk. You know, I can. I, he's, he's talking about space between things and giving space to things that don't necessarily announce themselves immediately uh, as what they are. You know, via labels like things that you have to kind of sit with for a while. Yeah. Well, just yeah, just just I think his, you know, his initial point is, is is great that you you would not really encounter that level of specificity uh, on the internet or in any kind of general conversation. The internet's just a way of having a conversation. And if, if you, if you, I mean, to use Julian's example, right. if you looked at that painting on a, that was made on a canvas awning that had been in a butcher shop in the Atlas Mountains, you would either feel like it was worth the journey or it wasn't. And that's something, then, then it comes right. down to how it is invoked in what, in what particular vocabulary is the thing enabled, then you'd make a judgment about whether it's effective or not. And but you're, for many people, I think, and the layman that we're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, who doesn't, who isn't quite sure how to approach art, it's conceivable that their, the like cultural mediation of things like the internet may make it impossible for them to really experience the, th I mean, you're experiencing yeah. it in some way, but yeah. to experience it in any way, the way that interested Julian Schnabel may not be accessible to yeah. somebody if they, their head is filled with categories. Well, I don't know, it's just, it's, just, like, it's just different. I, I mean, I, everyone uses the internet to whatever way they use it, but it's not, it is its own experience. And one can, of course, there is, of course, art made just for that format. Right. It's just not the same experience. That's, sure, no, sure. no one should confuse it. I don't, I don't think one, deadens the capacity for the other. I just think they're completely different. Say, I was recently in London, I, there was a show of abstract expressionism, uh, essentially New York School painting, uh, post-war okay. New York School painting, at the Royal Academy in London. All the greatest hits, so to speak, <laughs> plus some of the secondary supporting material. It was by far the most attended show in London that week. It was mobbed, all day long, mob, mob, mob. People couldn't get enough of it. These paintings were the epitome of unique objects that require sober, one-to-one, -one perceptual in experience, or there's or there's nothing. There's either that or there's nothing. Gotcha. They don't a photograph just doesn't give you much. Right? You either there standing in front of this thing or you're not. And everybody wanted to be there, standing in front of these things. Right. And young, old, infirm, very, very young. It didn't seem to matter. It didn't seem like this was uh, in any way out of reach for people. And though many of the people there were clearly of the generation that most of their lives has lived online, but not this part. So, so the, the death of the aesthetic attention span is much exaggerated. Well, or I don't something. know. Who, <laughs> like, who knows? I mean, maybe <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's dead for some people, but probably yeah, yeah. maybe it never lived in the first place for some people. I don't know. Right, right. right but sure. I would say, again, it's a testament to the power of certain things. I mean, this work awakened it if it had been dormant. I will say that for me, as someone, like I don't consider myself to know much about the history of Western art, uh, but I have immediate access to that period mm -hmm. as well. That's what, that's yeah. my, would be my go-to. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I'm trying to uh, walk into the, the Met and I'm looking at Titian, like uh, I, it, it, I look, might look, be able to get something. A little too far removed in time. A, a bit, yeah. a bit perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I, I love Shakespeare and, in, 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 you know, I'm a language person, but yeah. for me in painting, yeah, I can't, I yeah. can't necessarily get what it is about yeah, that. No, you, but you're right. I think it's probably true for many people, even, even for many artists. The, yeah. it's, it's much easier to access the brilliance of a line Shakespeare than it is to the, the parallel expression 
in a, in a painting made at the same time. It is. It may it's help hard. to it's be hard. a painter, actually, at least in terms of understanding light and surfaces. And yeah, but, uh, the, I mean, it is the difference <laughs> between, between language which we all, we all use. Right. And we st even though the vocabulary might be antiquated, we still use it enough that we, it, it, you know, it registers. Painting is translation, and one has to both take in the scene, oh, it's a guy hunting with his dogs, and there are some nymphs and fawns and whatnot running around. It's a lot of translating. You have to translate that into what was really going on. You know, right. what was, what's the real story? Why is that nymph yeah. standing? What's in the that story behind the story? Yeah, or, well, and also know. like what what Sorry. was great about that particular performance of that? It helps sometimes helps to I tell this to students to look at a a painting from a much earlier time, to look at it. Not I mean, since you brought up Shakespeare, I'm going to use. It's funny because I use the example and the analogy. Imagine that it's a play. Right. It's a familiar play. Everyone knows the myth of Diana, the hunter. So what are we looking at? We're looking at one actor's performance. Right, 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 right. On, a, on one day mm -hmm. in the long-running show called Antiquity. Right. Right. And then you start to say, oh, he was better in that part <laughs> sure. than the other guy. Sure, right? sure. Yeah, there, it just requires more of what this, um, I had a neuroscientist, uh, Eric Kandel, on this show oh, no, talking, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was talking about top-down processing, you know, how the versus bottom-up, bottom-up processing being what yeah. we get immediately visually and w the, the raw data, yeah. and the top-down being like, oh, let me think about what, it takes a fair amount with that older stuff of top-down processing right. to get to that immediate right. visceral Right, Where you, know, you want to be is sort of right in the middle. You want right. to be able to access both right. simultaneously in a very elastic way. Exactly. But, uh, but sometimes it helps to get the, I find, the reverse. To get the top-down stuff, it actually might help to go in through the cellar <laughs> and just see, well, what was he good at? Yeah. You know, because uh -huh. not everyone's, even Titian wasn't, equally good in everything that was the prescribed stuff you had to know how to do in, the, in, his, in his day. So this starting was, with like, damn, that really looks like sunlight. Well, you know, not or, so much that. Look okay, at, look at, right. look at uh, <laughs> you know, look at how he handles uh, cloth or okay. folds. I mean, think of it more like, again, um, because we all go to movies and we all use language, the examples or analogies from, from theater and from literature are easier to, to latch onto. Think of uh, a certain director. It said about certain directors, oh, he's really good with crowd scenes. Right, sure. Not good with love scenes. Right. Really good with war. Really good with battle scenes. Not mm -hmm. good with dialogue. And it's, so, also, it's also giving ourselves permission, I guess, with respect to these great old masters to say, okay, like, oh, I'm, oh, I, oh, you, I, you, I, I you, can look at the flaws. You, you have know? total permission <laughs> yeah, yeah. to look at a Titian and yeah. say, Man, that was that was a bad day. He was having a bad day. Yeah, that, yeah. that arm is so out of whack. <laughs> so it, so then it's so out of whack. Maybe it's deliberate. Maybe he's right. really having fun with the arm. If you go, if you go to look at go to the Frick, look at the Ang paintings. Ang's women never have any shoulders. Okay. They are anatomically so far off. What's accuracy. the full name uh, of the as, artist? Uh, 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 his name is uh, uh, I'm blocking his first name, but Ang I N. G R E S Angus. Oh, Ang, right. Uh, Jean Dominique, I believe. Okay, okay. Jean Ang, Dominique. yeah. Ang, Ang. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, he's 1820s, 1840s. Yeah, yeah. The highest, highest, highest level kind of French court painter of his day. But the women have no shoulders. And that's odd because sure. certainly he knew how to draw. 
it must have been an effect he was going for. There's something, he must have had just some kind of weird feeling that that shoulderlessness was more regal or more sexy or more elegant or more refined. And right. Because this maybe in his, you know, weird perceptual equipment, shoulders were clunky or something. So, <laughs> right. so right. you know, there, but you could look at it and say, wow, where's the shoulder? That girl has no shoulder. How did she move her arm? So it's not realism. What I'm trying to say, it's not, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. realism. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an opinion. So we can, we can receive those opinions and we can say, mm, kind of cool or kind of interesting or not so much. It does take work. I'm not, I'm being a little frivolous. It does, takes work sometimes to get back with work that's out of, really out of our time frame to feel like we occupy the same mentality. Same, there, same uh, yeah, there's a certain amount yeah. of history you also yeah, need to just, know, you know informal What's going on? Language. Who's, and, who's yeah. who are they painting for? Right, right. But having done that work, we should then feel free to engage. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, yeah. Completely. On that note of specificity, um, David Sally, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. <laughs> thank you. It was a pleasure. It, it was a great pleasure mm -hmm. talking to you. And um, David's new book is called How to See. Um, the cover says To How See, uh, which actually, shockingly, took me quite a while to realize, which I think is part of the point. Um, I recommend that, that you all check it out. Thanks again. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of Think Again. I was serious last week, and I remain serious that I want to hear from you. I want to hear from people who are listening to and enjoying this show. Um, anything you want to tell me about any episode you particularly liked, any moment that spoke to you, anything about your own life that relates to the kinds of things that we've been talking about on here. I'd love to have that by email or in audio form. If you can send me uh, an email or an mp3 to jason at bigthink.com. Uh, I would love to read those and hear those. And the best of the audio files, the most interesting ones, I will try to include in an upcoming episode. We'll be back next week, and I'll be speaking with Tim Ferriss. Hope to have you back then.